Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. Allow me then a moment to consider. You seek your creator. I am looking at mine. I will serve you, yet you are human. You will die. I will not. Please hurry, there's something on board, please. Ferris, go again, you're breaking up. Lander one, repeat, I can't. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Mr. Patrick Green. Hey, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm saying and it weirder are... every single time. Yes, you are. And yes, that's not are. intentional. I'm not trying to make that a, a thing, but I think it's becoming a thing. So <laughs> I think you're going to write a whole like piece around your last name. Yeah. <laughs> and tonight we are joined by our contributing hosts. Andy. Christian Matska. Ajid. And a guest on the show, which I will let Patrick introduce. Yes, let's introduce this guest. And before we do, I want to do a couple of quick shout outs. So, you know what? I'm going to do those shout outs first, and then I'm going to hand it over to our guest to give us a little bit of background. First off, we just want to say thank you to our patrons. We have some new ones that we're going to thank at the end of the show tonight. That has been awesome. And hopefully, you're enjoying our new Dune series that's out on frame rate exclusive Patreon stuff. Um, if you want to join, you can go to perfectorganism.com slash support. We want to do a quick shout out tonight to one of our top 10 all-time contributing patrons, Mr. Chase Cupo, whom you've heard on the show before. Great dude, many projects to promote. Tonight, I wanna promote his music. So he did a, he's done some Alien-themed tracks, like a track for Alien Day called Contact. He has a lot of different singles, like Express Elevator to Hell, etc. You can find him uh, on streaming services. His artist name is Pathogen, so look him up. And you can find him uh, on either Instagram at pathogenlvmusic, or on Bandcamp at pathogenlvmusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you, Chase, for supporting the show, making awesome alien content. We love having you aboard. We also have another shout out slash announcement to make before we introduce our guest tonight, which is that Xander House, who's one of our really great longtime friends, is officially part of the PO and Shoulder of Orion families now. So uh, we're super pumped to have him on board. He's going to be helping us with some great media, some great social media content, hopefully some writing. He's a really good writer and an all around great dude who's been a friend of our shows for a long time. And we're really happy to have him officially on board. So a quick shout out to him as well. Now, getting to our guest for tonight. We have with us Mr. Matt John, not Matt Jones, uh, who <laughs> has a lot of other podcasts as well, but he's uh, an alien fan who has reached out to me and he's been listening to us for a long time and has some really cool perspectives on Covenant and uh, other things. And so without further ado, Mr. Matt John, how you doing? Hi, every, hi everyone. I, uh, 
Yeah, I, I, thank you. I just totally just creeped on Patrick after I uh, was hearing the last episode and I knew you guys were doing a Covenant retrospective and it's a movie I like. And so I felt like I wanted to throw my name into the chorus of like, yeah, I like this movie. I'll explain where I don't, but also where I do. Uh, I come from the Rogues in the House podcast. <laughs> I know. Listen, I am aware. And, and, and tragically, you guys kind of colored my perspective on the last episode. And then when I rewatched, I was like, uh, yeah. I mean, I've seen the film probably seven times or something, but I, ha- I had to I had to think about it. <laughs> I had to reflect. Uh, anywho, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, I do a podcast called Rogues in the House. It is focused on sword and sorcery as a genre. So if that's your jam, check us out. And part of the reason I reached out uh, to you guys is because I often shoehorn alien content in there. And it's not, it doesn't really belong in a sword and sorcery context so much, unless we look at where the paths converge with cosmic horror and sword and sorcery, but that's a different topic. Um, so now I'm here to unleash certain feelings I have about all of this. your background with alien as a franchise like have you, is this something that goes back a long ways for you or what yes uh so i actually aliens was the first which i think everyone always says uh an uncle introduced me to it um and then i had that buddy who uh he and i watched it endlessly and as a kid aliens was my favorite and then as i aged alien became my favorite <laughs> i friggin' love alien three um, I hate resurrection. <laughs> I, I, I like certain tiny features and I'm not too hard on the, the prequel. So that's a very quick, uh, overview though. I, I will not, uh, I will not say that, um, those prequels are, are without warts. They're very warty. They're warty indeed. They're, they're warty. Yes. So getting us back to where we left off on our previous round table. Christian had some thoughts on the character of Orem in particular that we had kind of cut off in the middle of. So kind of get us back in the swing of things. Christian, what are you thinking about Orem tonight? So in particular, I was thinking about the way that his character's demise comes about and how you need more. um, This being the sixth film in the series, you can't expect the audience to be on board with this character just doing the exact same thing that we've seen right from the first film, especially the scenes that had, had just happened before it really give him a reason to be much more suspicious. Um, and so I was kind of putting out there to the group, you know, what, is there a way that they could have moved forward with this that would have given the audience a little more to, to hold on to? And I wanted to bring up in John Space's original script for Alien Engineers, there is a scene, I don't know if you guys remember this, where David actually forces someone over an egg and gets them face hugged. Am I remembering that correctly? Right. That would have been a perfect moment mm. to have introduced that. You know, keep Orem suspicious of David, even though he goes down there and then David overpowers him. And that would be a whole new scene that we've never seen and the inevitability of what happens. Because we know he's going to get face hugged. That's never a question. But the audience needs to be on board with the actions that lead to that event. So that's one thing I wanted to say. Did other people have things to say about Orem? I don't want to railroad anybody. 
I have a couple. Matt, you got things. I don't want to be. I don't want to be the new guy who's all like, "Yeah, I got thoughts." But uh, but Matt, what you are, your instant feedback from our listeners, right? That's true. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. You can tell us what we got wrong in the last episode. I don't think you got much wrong. Actually, I was kind of intimidated after listening to it because I finished the episode after I'd already talked to Patrick. He's like, "Yeah, come on the show uh, during this time," and I was like, "Okay, sweet." And then all of these uh, amazing insights you guys brought up uh, kind of made me reconsider certain things. But with Orem and the egg, let me ask you this. why? So if, if that was in the original script, why do you think, what's the rationale for them not doing that? Because I agree with you, David using his power to force him, you know, face into the egg. Uh, I think that would work. But why didn't they? I mean, I have an idea of why. Well, it was from the, the, the script for Prometheus, the original Prometheus. Ah. So it was a whole different screenwriters, different everything. I'm just saying, yeah. you've got this moment that was that was taken out of that idea, and David is even more likely to do something like that in, in Alien Covenant. Right, and sh- and surely when you're shooting a film like this, everyone's standing around, they're blocking out the scene. Someone must have said, "Why is he?" I mean, you know, you've got a powerful director on set who you're not going to question. But maybe it, maybe it's as simple as they wanted to recreate that whole cane looking over the egg situation, and they wanted to recapture that moment and retread, which is lame. But maybe it was as simple as that, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, but as far as Orem, I got a couple of things that that kind of jumped out at me. At first, I was I. This sounds a little bad, but uh, with religious characters in film, unless there's something special about them they kind of often strike me as the flawed character, right? They're too bent on faith. They're too, uh, I, I don't know. They're too motivated by that. But then I realized like he's, and it was something I saw in the last supper where he makes a, he makes a comment about Tennessee. And he's like, I can't remember exactly what he says. He's like, Oh, Tennessee's a jerk. Isn't he or something. And coupled with that, and the idea of when they were making some jokes during a particular point, he's like, we must maintain focus. And he's all super serious. Um, and, and also there's, there's this one that really st- stuck out to me on this viewing where he says to, uh, sorry, who's the, the Ripley stand in, in this movie? What's her name? <laughs> Daniels. So Daniels, he <laughs> says to her after her husband was like burned alive in a pod, he says to her, uh, I'm not free climbing here. Yes. Like what? Like that to me is that's not a mistake piece of dialogue. I think mm-hmm. that was he's meant to be a dick. Yo, he's being a fucking asshole when he like, says that. Huge asshole. So uh, once I kind of just thought of him as a dick and a flawed person, <laughs> and maybe he's blinded by faith to the point where he's just kind of a dummy and a jerk. And so I actually felt better afterwards about him. And I even really like that line um, where he's like, you know, I saw the devil when I was younger and that, that kind of, that resonated, but yeah, man, he's uh he got what he deserved perhaps. So I don't, yeah, <laughs> those are my thoughts on Orem. He's a, he's a dick. Wrapping up Orem. I think he, you know, his, his final moments are chest bursted. 
you know, that's, that's the, that's what he, yeah. that's the role that he's playing. I mean, he is the major chest bursting sequel. Oh, well, not the major, we already seen two horrible ones and he's the more, Oh, look, something like we've seen before, but they turned it on its head and the little baby rises out of him and he does the Christ position and there's the glorious music and everything's great. But I think what makes Orm even more frustrating is that he's used for that. Like this, this religious character is also used for sort sort of the pseudo religious moment with the creature, which is strange. And I, 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 I don't care what anyone says that chest bursting sequence is awful, but I think that the, the puppet is great. It's beautiful. It looks great. It just eviscerates anything that's scary or terrifying or poignant about that whole process. It makes it into this, I don't know what it makes. It almost makes it into parody. It feels like parody. It feels like, oh, Alien Covenant is now crossed over into parroting like uh, Spaceballs. That's what it kind of reminds me of. Um, Where, you know, he's on his back and then he does the song and dance and everything. And I I remember when I saw that in the theater, like I, my blood pressure was probably through the roof. I was so pissed off at that moment. It's an interesting um, musical choice in that scene. It's and I like, get why they're using it. I get why they're yeah, using it. You know, I, I and I mean interesting. Like it's like it. It's um of course seems to be positioning us to be in David's emotional state maybe a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's, um, but it's kind of like this sort of dark. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's it, bittersweet, but regardless, I don't know. They didn't play it like a terrifying sound, like a horror note. They played it on a note of. I don't know, creation, which is, I don't know, probably the right choice, right? Patrick, do you have a thought on that? Did you? I did. Can you tell because I unmuted my microphone that I have, that I have a thought? I didn't notice. (laughs) So, so my my thought on that is, uh, it's the note that I hear in it is exultation. Right. And I think it's because we're clearly watching it from David's perspective by this point in the film, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, to, so to David, this is an act of birth and creation that's not frightening or shocking. There's reasons why that works for me as a, as a movie moment. And there's reasons why it doesn't. The reasons why it doesn't are entirely dependent on the context in which it happens, which is cartoonish, I think. And, and it's not exultative at all. I, I think that, I think Oram's descent into the chamber is just so stupid. And it's so predictable and it's like not scary and it's not interesting. And like everybody has said, it's just very rote. The life cycle is so fast. It's just sort of, it's just feels like um, cheap, right? It literally feels, I mean, the set even looks cheap to me when they're in the egg chamber down there. It just, it just feels cheap. But that moment on its own, I find very powerful and I always have and, and very significant as to the life cycle of the protomorph as opposed to the xenomorph or xx121 that we're going to get to me there's a couple of interesting things happening there that make me like it one is the musical choice that jed kurzel does which you were alluding to match which i i love that cue i always have i know a lot of people hate that and there's a lot of arguing online about it i remember when it came out to me it's always felt like kind of emotionally fulfilling it's felt like a moment of birth um, something about while it's playing, it cuts to, I don't know, Walter or something. There's a it like sort of cuts out of the, the cave with Orem and the music continues. And I don't know, it is, I, I, it makes me like, I have very, yeah, the moment has a lot of problems, but emotionally, just as I'm watching it, it doesn't, 
kill me every time. There's there's good and bad in it. Something yeah, about the flow of it. Totally, you know, totally. There editing. are things that there's things that work for me about it, but there's things there's things that don't. Just like most of the most of the movie is a, ma- a mixture of things that both work and don't work, in my opinion. But I think so. Another example of we can look at this movie from a lot of different ways. This exquisite corpse, we can look at it as really wise film decisions or mistakes that somehow add up to really brilliant choices, in my opinion. This is an example of Ridley Scott felt like the technology was not on par for the original 79 chestburster and what he wanted was something more akin to this, but they couldn't do it. So this was in, as far as Ridley's perspective goes, this was a moment for him to do what he had wanted to do in 1979, which is stupid because like that, that doesn't make any sense. You don't just change Canon because you have technology to accommodate it. That's why the star Wars revisions that happened in the nineties pissed everybody off so much, right? Like there's a lot of issues with doing that in my opinion. And I think it's not, not in good taste. That being said, Ridley Scott isn't the only person on set or the only person making this thing. There's a lot of other people bringing their own artistic perspectives to it. And I think those people made it into a moment that felt like it was a signifier that this was a fundamentally more delicate organism because it hadn't gestated as long as the, as the one that we get in the first film did, because it was the first of its kind. It was the first to emerge out of this, you know, Shaw developed ovary reproductive system that became the ovomorph that it was the, it was the it was this test subject it was the prototype it was the protomorph and because of that things are different and things are more fragile i mean if that had emerged on the on the table and the nostromo you know that would have been would have been smashed to smithereens within a second cuz it's this little spindly delicate thing coming out right and and you know parker would have just hit it with a fucking fork and it would have been done with but in this one the context that we're getting it is much more revelatory and much more like i was saying it's like an exaltation and so it's more of a sense of of don't touch the baby you know but i agree but it, depending on how you watch that scene it's it's it could be ludicrous i mean there's some sometimes when i'm watching it and i'm in a certain mood it feels like jurassic park when they're watching the fucking raptors come out of the eggs in the beginning and it's just this like cutesy little moment that doesn't work so again it's it does cut in on the smile because there's a big close-up on the little xeno smile yeah <laughs> it's cute you know well but, jurassic uh, you know. park that works it works being cute because yeah, we're so far removed from dinosaurs that that's we kind of like oh look a dinosaur you know yeah. it's a different land before yeah. time yep yep the, the thing so, i actually like about that scene is that it gives you a little more ammunition with the whole david didn't create the xenomorph bit because when you look at it it is so different from you know from film one and film two it looks distinctly different and so when people are mad that they think David created them, you can kind of point to that scene and say, well, no, look at that. It's obviously not the same thing. He created this, I think, as Patrick was saying last episode, he created this sort of flawed thing, uh, not unlike his his symphony, as it were. So I, in that regard, I like that scene because it's it's ammunition <laughs> to, to, to kind of, to put, regardless of what they were intending with that, um, we, there, it's retconnable if it's necessary, I guess. I I want to go back to what Christian said about the um, the motivate the the sorry the uh, option of having David force Orum's you know holding him down. I think that would also just highlight David's character more too. Like there's a sort of descent into madness, you know, like his desperation. Um, and his, his, his breakdown that he's not this perfect organism that he thought he was in the beginning as well. And he's just 
desperate. And then it would sort of justify um, that comment, you know, I've seen the devil or maybe does have a little bit of faith going down the stairs. And then he's, he realizes his faith was misplaced yet again. Um, I think it would have made his character stronger too. I would have, I think it would have strengthened both characters. So I really like that option. I think that would have been so much better. I agree. Um, I didn't want to jump in and just be like, yeah, let's make a better movie now. Like after the movie's been made, but like, it's, it's so that would have been a way better scene. And like, the 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 corporal aspect of of david like using his body against a human which is always against yeah. you know you know yep. all of that going against his programming yeah it would have been just more cinematic and everything than, than, and, and much know, more whatever. frightening right yeah much more frightening yeah. Yeah. seems like an easy choice to make i don't know you never know with these things with movie making movies is hard the eggs are gorgeous the, the redesigned egg that has the I don't know what, almost like a, um, it makes me think of the uh, Close Encounters mountain kind of at the, at the top of the alien <laughs> egg. Tower. This means something. Um, those are really interesting. The face hugger is slightly redesigned and is, is gorgeous. They did a really, really good job with the practical effects with that. It doesn't have the fingernails that the original had. Mm. So it has more of like a knitting needle kind of end. Because when you look in Alien, they called them like hag's fingers. Um, you can see these fingernails kind of gripping his hairline. And they took that away. I don't know why. But so I don't, I hate that we're starting with negatives on this podcast. I don't mean to be doing that. There's gorgeous, gorgeous stuff going on here. I think everybody loves David flipping uh, pebbles onto Orem. I think that's a, that's a great moment too. The, the impatient robot. Um, but, you know, I have a time machine in my garage. We can go back. We can, we can fix this guys. <laughs> but I, I think More what's important first, what's important about this, part two is we are getting into the second half of the film, which is historically within the last, how many, four years, three years, the most problematic part of, of this film where people, a lot, a lot of people just like, Oh, the second half just didn't do. I mean, I'm one of them. Um, But not to say that obviously there are great things in there. And I agree. I think that the face hugger, the, the effects, they're great. Um, When that thing is like running around and jumping, it's, it's gross. It, it's spine chilling. And, uh, but I think uh, pulling back a little bit, I remember reading somewhere an interview with someone who works with Ridley Scott saying Ridley Scott never likes to repeat himself. And then C- alien covenant releases and we have crew finds, you know, sort of the, the beats crew hears beacon crew goes to planet hell breaks loose. Um, and on its head, uh, that that's my some of my main issues is we're repeating beats more and i think prometheus changes that a little bit prometheus decided we're not going to really do that there were some similar beats as well i mean they don't find a beacon I, I mean i guess you could say they do they find one on earth they go to distant planet they go to planet they find juggernaut it's, it's all hell breaks loose again. <laughs> um but again throughout ridley scott's career everyone said oh he doesn't like to repeat himself he doesn't like to do sequels and i'm like bullshit he's repeated himself three times now and to the point of as we wrap orum the the scene of the chest burster and patrick you're talking about how you can un, you see it like you see it through david's perspective how how it's revelatory and that's the perspective we're seeing that's great but we're still the audience we're not david we're still seeing something we've seen before 
better. Um, and we're not just seeing, we've not just seen it better. We've seen it scary, not, oh, look, that's a beautiful butterfly. Like we're, we're, that's kind of how it's presented. And I think that's the issue. It's, it's not, I think the problem or the challenge with alien, even as we go toward the Hulu series, how do you re uh, how do you show us something we've seen before in a new way? in a way that thrills us, in a way that scares us. That's a really difficult ask, especially with Alien, where there's been how many movies, you know, including the AVP movies, which really made things harder for us as an audience. But we're, so we're taking all of that baggage and we're going into Alien Covenant. It's hard to see it for what it is. Um, but when they really tried and pushed the envelope with the backburster, with the throat burster, with the, all of that foreboding, atmosphere that we saw in the first half it was really really working and then it just kind of sat back on its laurels um narratively at least that was my perspective of it even though that there are some great things in it like the alien on top of the lander some just the some of the the designs uh but yeah that's 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 kind of my that's the hill that i have to climb My last thought on Orem, just to be done with him, is that his name even, it's Gorman with a couple letters filed yes. off, right? Mm-hmm. About that and, and what you're missing, what you've, what you've lost from Gorman is a character arc. Gorman is the presented G. and he, he messes up and then he's out of the picture for a while, but when he comes back, he does something to redeem himself. Orem is introduced and immediately is off on the wrong foot with his crew and then makes a couple possibly good decisions like going to this planet i think he's trying to make people happy and then the the movie just doesn't give him the opportunity in any sense to he, he doesn't he doesn't save anybody he doesn't take a leadership role and then he's just used as as a you know a, a, an oven he bakes the new monster and it's too bad so and in the beginning he's telling the audience they don't like me no one likes me Versus letting us see their interactions and finding out for ourselves what their relationship is. Yeah, because they all just woke up. <laughs> yeah, and then the and and I think it was in, instead of showing us character arcs and storylines, it was they just flat out told us they tried to fill in the gaps with, you know, exposition that didn't mean anything to us, and you know they don't like me was was his big, you know, revelation to the audience. But we didn't get to see that. Yeah, and it's also just—it's also just uninteresting dialogue too. You know, like like not only is it—is it just treating us like we're a bunch of fucking idiots? Yeah, that's what it is, <laughs> right? It's a, taking a shortcut to help an uninformed audience figure out what's going on. But there's also just not poetry to it. There's nothing like it, it's just—it's just people saying shit, and that I, I think is you know Jamie and I talked quite a bit about that on that kickoff for this series. That's that's an issue that I continue to have with a lot of films that come out these days is there's just the sense of like you have to just spell everything out like it, it's almost like the fourth wall doesn't exist anymore and we're just sort of constantly being reached across it being like oh here, here's the packet you should have read you know here's a powerpoint so you know exactly what's going on like we shouldn't need things like that we shouldn't need daniels to be hitting us over the head with the loss of her husband right at the beginning of the movie like we shouldn't have all of these like just 
it because it feels like it's forced on us, you know. And and with when you watch Aliens, which I think is is even better than Alien in terms of character development, which is saying a lot. I think that the character development in, in Aliens is exactly what you're saying. It's it's evincive. It it causes it brings it like we bring ourselves to it. And we're able to like form the arcs within our heart as we watch the movie unfold and we make these judgments and those judgments like change with us over time depending on how we watch the movie gorman is a character that as a kid i just hated all the time i just i was like get this person out of the movie he sucks he's getting in ripley's way and it took me like until i was an adult to be like i actually really appreciate gorman as a character because without him vasquez doesn't get her real redemption at the end without him like we don't have any growth it's just it's just another company lackey doing a bad job right and even burke has character development in a really beautifully perverse way like that is something that the writers of the next film or the next hulu series have to keep in mind because and you know, I don't, we don't, we, well, I guess we'll take a pause and get into this for a minute. Ridley Scott did another interview, which is always bad news. Just, it's just always bad news. If, if Ridley Scott is, is, uh, is in any magazine, just, just like, don't read it. Cause he just says asinine things the entire time. Um, and then this particular interview, and it was in the end, in the independent, and it ends with him talking about the Hulu series and just preemptively shitting on it. This is a series that we're assuming he's producing. Um, you know, I, I, I thought that was in the press announcement, but maybe I'm forgetting that at this point. No, what they're say, they said in the press announcement was that they have been they were in active negotiations. Oh, to they get were him negotiating. That's what it was. You're absolutely right. Right. They were ta in talks. Mm -hmm. Right. In advanced talks. Right. Mm -hmm. um, well, I don't think he is because his one comment on it was while he was smiling, quote unquote, that it will never be as good as the, as the original film. I mean, I, I, I have all kinds of hope for that TV show. I think it's going to be wicked. Um, I think I, so too. I think Fargo is just one of the better shows on TV. But yeah, no. It, it, you're right, though. He's throwing unnecessary shade if, if that's what it is. But it's hard to tell how tongue-in-cheek he said without like a, a video or audio, right? Because I could talk shit too and perhaps not totally mean it, but but the problem here is too bad that has to be an article because it's like coppola being like oh this like this fx godfather series won't be as good as the original we're all like all right and the problem was with that even if we don't know tone we don't have a audio or video empirically he's been making comments like this since prometheus about the the beast being out of steam about this about that and this man clearly is done with this series he's clearly done He's clearly disinterested. He doesn't have anything to say anymore. Uh, but th these journalists keep approaching him and keep bringing up the subject. And then they use his quotes for headlines and then makes everybody angry. Like the, the further he away, he can get from this, the better off this is going to be, I think. Yeah. And that's something just briefly that I, I, I was mentioning in our chat thread earlier in the week. Uh, I'm realizing more and more that I love Covenant in spite of Ridley Scott's involvement with it. And that's kind of a hard place to to be in because for a long time I've been defending him, you know, but I, I really think there's been, he said things that have like genuinely offended me about Alien in the past. And I've kind of given him, like you're saying, the benefit of the doubt, you know, like the fact that he keeps bringing up the beast is cooked in like so many interviews and he keeps talking about how uninteresting the monster is at this point and um, saying things that are pretty anathema to Alien fandom around the world. And, uh, and this is just another example of like get the fuck away from this series you know like like ridley scott is one of my 
all-time heroes. Without Ridley Scott, my life would look and feel very different than it does. He's responsible for the two most important movies in my entire lifetime. Um, two of the things that I, you know, define parts of my identity by. And yet he continually does things like this. And it's just really unfortunate. And one other thing I'll say about this article, since we're just talking about it, is in the beginning of it, he's talking about Prometheus and Covenant briefly. And he's like, you know, he's just like shitting on the studio. He's saying, you know, I made Prometheus and it made $400 million at the box office. And the studio said, that's not a lot of money. And I said, well, sure it is. And they said, well, give us a monster. So I gave him the monster and then I made $200 million less than that. And now who's right? And I'm like, what the fuck, Ridley Scott? What the fuck? Seriously, it is it is infuriating to read that. And and I and I get the sense that a lot of Covenant, a lot of that exquisite corpse thing we're talking about, where it feels like different voices and different movies creating something, is people fighting against choices that he's making. Sometimes for the better, but sometimes for the worse. And I feel like when there's a total mismatch, like this moment that we're talking about with the chestburster, which can feel powerful sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't to me at all. Sometimes it feels kind of like a joke. I think it's that. I think it's because it's not really sure of what it is because it's the product of people fighting. When you see Alien 3, which is the epitome of a movie that's created out of people fighting with one another, something about it transcends that. Something about it clicks in a different way. Covenant to me is on the cusp of that so frequently. There's these moments where you're like, oh, this is a great alien movie. And then there's choices that just wrench it out of that place. And what what you end up with, to bring us back to our conversation, is a movie that has a third act in it and a fourth act in it that I personally have to turn my brain off to enjoy. I will say this, though. I do enjoy the final third of the movie, but I don't enjoy it like I enjoy an alien film. I enjoy it as like, wow, I've never seen the creatures look this cool. You know, I've never seen the, the you know, it just, it, it's great getting to see these things moving in such a fluid way. Like I really enjoy seeing the, you know, fucking Friday the 13th stalking sequences on board the ship at the end of the movie. Like it's fun in a slasher film context, um, but it's not an alien film and it doesn't feel anything like it to me. And so when we watch this movie, which I still do and I still enjoy, I'm like so tuned in for the first two thirds of it. I, I know, Jamie, we've talked about this a lot. I know you, you start to kind of tune out when David shows up to a degree. Um, and I, th I think, right? That's sort of where you start to yeah, tune out. Yeah, yeah. well, it, I mean, I think his interaction with Walter is really fascinating. And yeah. singing to himself was really fascinating. I tried to, based off our last conversation, I was like, I'm going to watch this movie again. And I did, and I turned it off one hour and two minutes in. I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. But yeah, that's yeah. the hard and not because it's not, there's not interesting things in there. There are, which I know we'll get into it. Just the tone is all over the place. Right, I don't know what right. the movie becomes. Right. Whereas in the beginning it's focused. We know the story they're telling, you know? Right. But, but for me, the, the David Walter stuff still works for me a hundred percent. Like, like I'm, I'm still on board that works all for me that, too. And, I, and I'm like yeah. loving it. And then what happens is the landing sequence, the lander sequence happens, which is like genuinely thrilling and fucking i mean there's a reason why that particular iteration of this protomorph creature is like drawn all over everything there's a reason why that clip was used all over the trailer there's a reason why when alien annihilation the arcade game you know was was rebranded with covenant stuff if anybody played this like that was the the image they used on everything it's because it's fucking terrifying right and i am like on board and then after that the movie just becomes this kind of mindless like i feel like i'm at an amusement park which is okay maybe but it's, it's not an alien film it's always struck me as very weird how slasher it goes, right? You know, Ridley's not known as a slasher director, but it's not it's not like the same claustrophobic horror uh, and terror of Alien. 
it goes into full slasher mode with teenagers who are having sex who then need to die. And then it goes into that strange, you know, first person wormy vision, which I'm unsure how I feel about that. I liked it in Alien 3. Not totally loving what happened in Covenant, but that is, I mean, what do you, what does anyone have any ideas on why it turned into, why he decided to make it slasher? Because it, it is jarring. It is that final act is, the I mean, again, interest. yeah, it seems as though, and he, it's, it feels almost like uh, when Raimi had to tag on Black Suit Spider Man or Venom in, in, in oh, number three, and it, it just felt, it felt like it was something. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it, it, that's kind of how it felt to me. Like he felt he had to do this part. So it's just jammed on there. It's funny. We're talking about this because I've been waiting to bring up this sequence when the lights are flashing red and it's like just throwback alien moment. And like Tennessee doesn't care about his dead wife anymore. And it's like, we got guns, baby. And it's like, it's like, there's an alien. We got to get it. And then um, it's all, it's always um, been very boring and wrote to me until for some reason, a week or a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about it and I watched it, for some reason, I was maybe because the first viewing was kind of not gelling with me as much. So when this moment happened, I was like, you know, I could have taken a movie of this of just like just pure, you know, sort of base entertainment for a minute. And it was, but yeah, I wanted to, it, it feels like a little movie all on its own. It feels like it's out of another movie. I agree. So this, so the slasher calling it a slash from you know sequence i think is apt well i'll direct it back to you guys what do you guys think about that whole whole part the second alien aboard the ship does it ever do anything for you so you've got the the shower scene in psycho right and i've always felt that brett's death with him taking his hat off and letting the water drip on his face was ridley scott's classy answer to the shower scene mm-hmm. damn yeah, I hadn't thought of that. so then what what is this mm-hmm. this is you know, in in an interview, I, I don't have it on, on uh, I can't point to it, but I swear he said, well, that's what happens in horror films. So here it is. It's the first nudity in an alien film. It's a sex scene that, you know, that's on camera. And it's so clear. First of all, these are the, the two least developed, least interesting mm-hmm. characters in the entire movie. They, and so that's how they die. There's, you could actually cut them entirely out of the movie. Tennessee could just be talking to himself, which would be kind of funny. <laughs> They do not need to be in this movie. And if you take their death out, you just shorten the movie. That's, that's great. That's what Ridley likes to do, likes to tighten up all the movies. The death of Lope, though, is almost offensive. First of all, Lope is a really, really underdeveloped character that I want to talk mm-hmm. about more. But to, to have him die off screen after that, that plot device of, oh, we have to reboot the computer. So she'll be offline for a while. I can't tell us what's going on. And, oh, he's dead. Now there's a full alien. And, and then the question of, you know, the facehugger goes on him for all of three seconds. Did that do it? Or is it the moment when Walter slash David peels the thing off his cheek? Does he put, you know, an egg in him? I mean, there's, there's the possibility that something interesting happened there. I don't know. But to kill that character off that way, um, it, this is a different movie. This is, you know, Exquisite Corpse. We're into this part where this is what he thinks the studio wanted him to make. So he's just going to throw it together. That alien cannot get through the cab of that truck. It it cuts to like five different angles and it still hasn't even gotten across the second seat yet. Like, what is going on here? It's a, it's a completely constructed moment so that she can slam the door and climb down and whatever. No, no. I, I, 
I don't know what to do with any of that. There's stuff at the beginning though. Like for example, um, Kareen and Ferris are the, have the best, most genuine moment in this entire movie. And you all know what I'm talking about. It's the, the two of them dealing with, um, with Ludward, Ledward, Ledward, it's, it's Ludworth. 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 <laughs> but that's it. That's the, for, for non, non-Android characters in this movie, if it's not Michael Fassbender, these are the only two other two people who have a chance to actually emote and to not just give us dialogue about how their, what their history is or who they're married to. It's like they are actually having a moment and there, I just, I, I can't get enough of that. For me, this movie, when the, when Lander one, there's only one Lander. Why do they call it Lander one? When Lander one drops from the, from the uh, covenant until David fires the flare gun, that's a perfect movie. And that's what I love about this film. And then there's other parts, yeah, but like, like Patrick, like you're saying, you kind of have to turn your brain off or you have to switch, you have to switch gears. Let's put it that way. When they get to that corpse city and they go into the, the temple or whatever it is, give me one line from Lope that is equal to Ripley saying to, to Hudson, I need schematics. I need floor plans. I need, you know, show me that you are trying to defend this place. Show me that you're trying to keep these people alive. What does he do? He kind of stands there. Maybe he goes up and runs the, the radio. I don't know. Everyone just kind of sits there. The movie shows us if you walk 10 feet this way, you'll find all the, the murder porn pictures that David has drawn. If you walk 10 feet that way, here's a tunnel down to where my killer eggs are. No one explores except for the one person that go, oh, I'm going to go wash my arm. No one come with me. You know, okay. That was a whole bunch of my feelings. I'm going to stop. I, I, I wanted to point out one thing real quick, just the idea where when they're in that Dia Necropolis and the, Ooh, nice. but the geography, you don't get any sense of where anyone is anywhere. And that's something that most movies I don't necessarily notice, but when I notice or when a filmmaker does it really well, like, have you ever seen the movie You're Next? Um, uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Like, just the handling of geography in a home to kind of really bring you in and give you the visual cues. We do not get any of that. It is just clearly one set attached willy-nilly to another. Um, and I think a little of that, if we had some kind of geographic orientation, um, would have kind of helped. But I don't think that's the kind of movie we're playing with here there wasn't really much interest in doing that again i'm pooing on it i, I came on here because i actually like this movie <laughs> but we'll it's get okay. there. it's okay to poo on it because this is a movie that deserves it a lot of the time it does. i say that as somebody who has advocated for this movie for probably fucking 300 hours on podcasts <laughs> let, let me just say though that necropolis scene that you're talking about is another great example of really interesting stuff that is held back by really poor filmmaking decisions. I think that I think is one of the great moments in Jed Kurzel's score. I adore that cue. That's why it's in the bumper of the show. That's why I fucking play that track all the time. I yeah. love the music that accompanies them going into it. It feels to me ancient and expansive and really interesting and, and not at all reliant on the original film. It just feels like, like this is Jed Kurzel's take on an alien film and I'm haunted by it. I think it's so beautiful. Uh, the soundtrack's so good. It's so good in the movie. Yeah, I, 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 agree. I agree. I love the soundtrack. Yeah. Team could have used like some just uh, looks on maybe the 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 uh, the team going in just their faces of like wonder or horror yes. or anything. They're just kind of the like thing. there's yeah. no kind of like hey lingering. like what's going on? We're in this dire necropolis. I, like it, right. I've been I've been to one of these. Like but before any of that, 
There are beasts out there hunting them. They should be terrified. terrified. These people should be terrified. What the fuck is out there? Like, and you're in the dark in this on this planet that you know nothing about. You should be scared out of your fucking mind. They're not at all. And not only they're not scared, they don't even look conscious. They're just sort of like <laughs> David did David said it was perfectly safe. True. Remember? <laughs> That's very true. You gotta believe this guy. You just you yeah, but they've seen the monsters with their with their own eyes. And you know, and not they, for they nothing, if you get ripped if, off. Even just standing in some giant court courtyard citadel thing, like just even on Earth is kind of amazing, but they're not really impressed by the structures, by the millions of black corpses and like yeah, we needed awe. There was no awe no, from the no. characters. The expectation is that the audience is supposed to be pulled in, but we don't read it on any character. If the characters are so bored and blasé, there's nothing to pull us in. They look bored. There's no way what they are seeing would not elicit some sort of response. There's so like you were saying, Christian, like 10 feet here. Ten, there were like a thousand things that could have you know, wowed them in some way, whether horrified them or inspired awe. And we got none of that. And we are expected to be wowed by this. And it's like, what are we, you know, we're not getting any cues from them. So it's sort of, we're just going into this, like, what are we looking at? Well, it's not even that we're not getting cues from them. The camera's not giving us any cues either. The camera's not exploring it. It's just like, oh, okay, let's go. Yeah, yeah, we're just—it's like tunnel vision through these things. We're like, oh, we're seeing little bits, and contrast that with the scene when they go into Hadley's open aliens. I mean, that—that whole scene—I don't know how long it is, but every corner they turn, you can see it on their faces. They're like, "What the hell is going to be around here?" They are cautious. They are, you know, obviously the Marines—they know how to do this, but they are looking. They are methodical. They notice things, they comment on them, and we're like, oh, my God, what are they going to see? What are they going to see? This, it's like 5,000 things, and we don't, yeah, and you're right. It's not expansive. Like, the shot selection, it's, some scenes are so tight, you're not seeing the whole view. It's just, it was very, very odd choices, I feel, that were made. I feel like there's a great movie in here somewhere. Yes, yeah. And, yes. and, and it pokes just, through a lot. And that's what's yes. frustrating is yeah. you see it and you're like, whoa, this is, wait a minute. Yeah. Yes. That's well, the that's frustrating it, it, thing about it. It, it's, it's, it is tragic because that the, the whole dire necropolis, the idea that you've got this place with all these charred corpses, like that's a rad setting and amazing. you could have done a lot with it. And you're right. There's just a series of missed opportunities. And do we know like how much, how long an initial, I feel like I've heard this talked about, but like, is there footage on the floor that could be reconstructed? Not that we're going to see it, but do you There's, think there are some of these shots, some of these things that Ridley just scalpeled yeah. down so he could get his two hours or whatever? Well, there's one scene specifically of them marching towards the, they're following David and they, they're walking on this kind of ravine area and they look down and there's another juggernaut, I think underneath and someone throws a flashlight or they shine a flashlight and it's a quiet discovery moment that was just nixed so that they yeah. could get to where they needed to get to. But it was a beautiful alien inspired atmospheric moment that, you know, just made went to the cutting floor because of time. And there, and there mm. were 20 minutes cut from the movie during the editing process. So the first cut of the film was two hours and 23 minutes. And then they 
cut 20 minutes of it. Some of that emerged as the special features and the prequel stuff that we get to see on YouTube and on the special features of the of the mm. DVD. But there's other sequences like what Jamie's talking about that just aren't shown anywhere. Yeah, 20 minutes is significant. That's it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot. Yeah. But like when they're in the room with the, the giant heads, which no one even comments on, um, the heads were only built up to about the nose on a lot of them. And then the rest of it was was done digitally for, for budgetary reasons. But that's great. That's fine. But it actually means that there's very few tracking shots. Like everything is very stationary because you don't want to go through the trouble of having to 3D render, you know, how the head is going to move. Um, so again, we're, it, it's a gigantic set that's used poorly. And that's a reoccurring theme throughout this movie. I feel like even the the, the set of the Covenant clearly was an expensive set to build, but it's shot so quickly. Uh, in the in the making of book, they talk about how Ridley Scott will set up sometimes as many as six cameras and get an entire scene done in two takes and move on. So he's actually ahead of himself and the crew, the crew is trying to have things ready in case he he finishes early and wants to add more scenes to his day. So that's, that's maybe why time. certain things feel kind of first drafty. You, even when we're, yeah. you know, not to go back to Orem, but I'm going back to Orem for a second, just because <laughs> just to say that it, that whole him waking up him for some reason, thinking it's Walter for some reason. And then um, just immediately asking him, what do you believe in? It, just, you know, they feel like kind of placeholdery, but anyway, good things about the movie. Um, Jamie, you were at one point you were talking about just like the last, we were all talking about like the last third of the movie or whatever you did mention good face hugger stuff, like some nice scary, the face hugger was kind of scary as it's like moving around and all that, but also, and we're talking about the use of the, of the necropolis, um, set piece that maybe could have been better, but the flashback is pretty good. Would, would you guys say also, I really love there's some, honestly, Maybe they're just talking about it is making me realize there may be only a few moments in the movie that I really like actually love, but that is a, a scene I love, like in a movie when you see Fassbender's face with like tears in his eyes saying yeah. it, just remembering, reflecting on what he did. And he says that line, you know, the line Look and then works in my <laughs> and despair. Yes. And then. And that just that sound design that choice sound, and, yeah. so, and the sort of dissonant, you don't know if their voices or strings just kind of and, and micro then, polyphony, uh, Matt. Oh, thank my, you. We'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to <laughs> I wanted to ask you about about modes as well. Anyway, we'll get to that <laughs> at a later date. But uh yeah, the them all um dying from the black goose, of course, scary and cool, but there's just weird, there's interesting that 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 flashback ends with this really weird. It's probably, you know, almost definitely CGI shot of just like this, this it's flying through the, the, what would you call it? Courtyard. And, and there's just stuff raining down and it's just chaos, but it's, it's this shot that almost looks like it's on someone's shoulder and they're running with the camera or it's like flying and it's very unsteady and stuff. Just very cool. And also of course that giant uh, hub ship thing that he pulls into, he docks with or whatever. Very cool. Not in Prometheus. Where, yeah. Where did it go though? It's it's not there when they arrive 10 years later. So the thing that was hovering, we don't see it crashed. Did it fly off mm. now? All right. This is going to tie in with something. I, I know I, I kind of went off on a tangent last time about, you know, what if the opening scene uh, with Wayland was, was like a, a faulty memory or something. Listen, I, just had I to, gotta just tell you before you, I love that. Yeah. Because okay. When I, when I rewatched that, I was like, if that's not what would was intended, 
it is now in my <laughs> head canon because uh, and I, yeah it was awesome great observation he's, loved it he's he's facing away he's facing away from wayland yeah. he's looking out the window and he he lists the objects in the room he does not list wayland he doesn't say decrepit old man or you know whatever like wayland almost doesn't even isn't even worth mentioning compared to the, the the statue and the painting and the chair. And that's, that was sort of surprising when I rewatched it. Yeah. And I mean, he does go right into it and say essentially that he starts asking questions about who created you. So he's already fucking yeah. with them, you know? Oh. Yeah. He's past him. But yeah. so, all right, for this one, I've got a, I've got a new idea or, okay. What if you took the opening scene from Prometheus, the, the uh, prehistoric, you know, um, sacrifice moment, and you took the David waking up with with um, with Wayland moment and swap them between the two movies, so that Prometheus opens with David looking out, meeting his creator, playing the piano, so that we have a younger Wayland before we get the old Wayland. But then also, I think that Covenant would actually benefit from seeing more of the engineers, seeing them doing something ritualistic seeing what the effect of the black goo is, but also the ship in the sky would have a nice parallel to when David comes in, in the, in the juggernaut and how they all come out. It's a, it's a religious gathering almost. So just throwing that out there. Wow. That is food for thought. <laughs> that's a, no, that's a great idea. It, it, it feels like a long-term thinking choice for the series of the movies to be like, no, the first scene starts like of this, of this story starts with this. The opening of Covenant very much feels like it was clipped from Prometheus. Mm -hmm. The question is, what happens if you then remove that piece from Prometheus? I don't know. I got to think about that. The, the real downfall is that the makeup is so different between uh, the engineers and Prometheus, where it's an almost seamless full body suit on mm -hmm. Ian White to whatever we're getting in, in Covenant. The, the art book continuously calls them engineers. So I have to say, Patrick, I'm sorry, but whatever Ridley Scott is telling us blatantly with these movies, we need to, we need to take him at his word because he's a bastard. He is saying that David made the aliens. He is saying that the space jockey is that you, you saw him wrong. He's just an engineer, like all that bullshit. Yes, but sorry, Patrick, I know you probably want to come back at that. But the good news is I never thought I'd say this. <laughs> But Disney has it now, and Ridley will have less power. And so for retconning, you can kind of pick the little nuggets of goodness out and throw the other stuff away. And you're already kind of, I don't know if you're seeing it with the expanded universe stuff, but we are seeing a, a lot of uh, grooming as far as taking, taking the bits that we like and then perhaps leaning away from the things that we don't. So I kind of agree with you in the sense that, yeah, yeah. Ridley has his intentions and we kind of got to acknowledge those. But when you think about the future and what can be done, we might be able to kind of put a little bomb on all of this. Mm, I love the I optimism. To, to um, really fully understand where Ridley Scott's mind is for Covenant, there are some things happening before Covenant even went before the cameras that Ridley Scott was working on. Notably, Blade Runner 2049, that story was hatched with him and Hampton Fancher, and that's where his mind was. His mind was on AI. That's where he wanted to go. He had to bypass 2049 and hand it to Denis Villeneuve, thank God, because he didn't have 
the schedule or the time to make the film, which I'm sure for Ridley Scott was a big deal. He was he's giving his baby more so than alien in some ways over to someone else that came from a story that he helped break. Um, and then Hampton Fancher wrote and you heard about, you heard Ridley Scott talking in interviews that for him, AI is kind of the real alien. Uh, and I think we saw, we've seen hints of that in alien. I feel like Ash is the most dangerous character on that ship, even more so than the creature itself, just because he represents a humanity that doesn't care. And humanity is terrifying when it doesn't care, when it looks at something that also has life and says, I don't give a fuck about you. Especially um, when it looks like a human too. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's even worse. I mean, I think that's where even with uh, Philip K. Dick's writing, he, he wrote do androids dream of electric sheep based off of accounts of SS officers and the way they were treating children with zero empathy and Ash embodies that. And if we move it to covenant, I think to bring it kind of back around, certainly to, to, to David, David really was the, the worst part of covenant in terms of the creature. Like David was scarier than any of those creatures. Um, he embodied something, but it wasn't just, oh, this is man's greed. He was, his wires were loose. Yes. So it made him, and he looks like us. So it makes him even more terrifying. It's one of our own creations without direction, without control. And that's a scary thing, which would make him picking up Orem and f shoving his head into a, an Ovamore even more scary. And it would really, really work because to Ridley Scott's point, if AI is the scariest thing happening there, there we go. But they didn't really, they kind of went there, then they kind of didn't. And then in the end, which I actually enjoyed, you see Daniels in the pod and um, she's trapped and it's a, it's a joke. I mean, clearly the audience was kind of in on, like we knew right away that David was transforming himself into Walter and it, that whole thing falls completely flat. But I think, Regardless of it falling flat or not, it was really interesting. I liked the end. I liked that she realized too late that this isn't Walter and that we're in trouble here and I'm about to go to sleep and that there's nothing that I can do. And then I, I, I love that whole ending sequence. Um, yeah. Can I just say, sorry, that that, that piece of acting, uh, I mean, obviously Fassbender's wicked in the whole movie and he's my favorite part, but it's such a subtle... Uh, a subtle thing he does when 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 she Daniels notices who he is, who he really is, he just makes this subtle almost nod, you know. And I just when you rewatch it, it's like him realizing that she realizes in that moment. The expression on his face is I don't know. It's chilling to me. He's he's half smiling, and he almost enjoys it that she notices. I don't know that that whole part. When I rewatched, that stood out to me as like one of the best little subtle pieces of acting that he did. It's a nightmare, nightmare scenario, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she's back in the pod where her husband mm -hmm. burned alive, too. Right. It's just there's a lot going on there. Yeah, it's an incredibly fraught moment, and and I think part of why the ending works so well for me is when he walks 
you know, like a God into Valhalla at the end of the film, there is no answer to what happens next that we like have because the film doesn't exist. So it's really as scary as you want it to be. And and I don't know about you guys, but my imagination is a fucked up place. So for me, it's Mm. like, it's very frightening where that goes next. Um, I do want to circle back. There's been a, a few things that I've wanted to, to get. I, I want to go back to Christian's thing about swapping the intros. I disagree with you on that personally. Right. Although, although I, I like that, I like it as an idea and as a thought experiment. To me, the reason why the intros work the way that they are is because it pivots to the story of David for Covenant. So it's like signaling that this is really his 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 story, whereas the first one was really the story of exploration and finding the forbidden fruit and the engineers. So to me, that it works the way that it is. Although I do think there is a definite Promethean aspect to the beginning of Covenant that uh, is is unmissable. But but I, I kind of like that. I like that it kind of it shifts the perspective a little bit. Um, as far as engineer species goes, you're right. There are many places in the art book and many places where Ridley just calls them straight up engineers, and that's frustrating for me. Uh, but if you watch the special features on the Blu-ray, there's which I'm sure you have, there's many moments where the art department is saying that they're not, that they're specifically supposed to look different and, and function differently because it's, it's a different species. So that's something that, again, what we're seeing, though, is we're seeing people working against what Ridley is trying to say. And that, I think, is just constantly a theme. On the first kickoff we did of this, I said, you know, if if it turns out that this whole thing was just about getting to the xenomorph as we know it in the first movie that never existed before, like that, that would be a huge deal for me. That's like a red line to cross. Uh, you know, having now rewatched all the special features and reread many of the books on it that I have, or at least the art book, you know, it's clear that that's what Ridley is, is very clearly, and John Lang- John Logan is trying to say, they're, they're trying to say, this is how we get to the first movie. This is the Rogue One sequence with Darth Vader coming through the door on the Corvette. This is the same, the same thing, right? Which is, which sucks. But I, I feel better about it because I think of it as an eternal return thing. Like we talked about with Philip Christian, where this, this accelerant has been there since the dawn of whatever and is the sort of this ancient hubris test that species and civilizations go through. And in the context of the alien franchise, it resulted in this xenomorph, which is this twisted mirror version of ourselves. You know, so that's why it looks like us and it looks like our sexual fears and things. And that's why it feels like this kind of funhouse mirror of who we are. But that, you know, for eons into eternity past, this thing has caused different civilizations to crumble in different ways. So, so that's that's like a way that I get around that. But again, that's not Ridley Scott said. Like Ridley Scott doesn't give a shit about that. This is people who know the franchise well, working within the the fact that they have to like say yes to this, you know, beyond legendary director that they're working with, but also trying to make it fit. I think, which is something that we see time and time again, and and I think is part of why this movie kind of is so interesting is because there's a push and a pull going on the entire time between different people with different, you know, ideas. I also want to circle back quickly to David holding Orem over the egg. T- to me, that would, that signals something that I don't want to forget to talk about, which is that, and I'm glad because we did talk about this scene earlier, there is something in great films like Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 about ambivalence and the importance of having ambivalent filmmaking. By that, I mean filmmaking, not that filmmaking that doesn't know what it is, but filmmaking that presents a series of open-endednesses, right? So filmmaking that presents itself as something, but you watch it as a person and your subjective experience makes it something different because you're the one watching it, right? Great writing does that. Great poetry does that. Great music does that. A great piece of music can mean an infinite variety of things to an infinite variety of people because it's subjective enough to allow you to put yourself into it and figure out what it means to you. The birth sequence coming out of Orem in the chamber is an example of something that doesn't do that. And I think that had David been holding his head... So so picture this as a little thought experiment for you all. If David had been holding his head 
over the the Ovomorph, but that same hymn music had been playing in the background. How fucking cool would that have been, right? Because it would have been a visually and emotionally scary moment, but played for beauty, right? That's pretty mm -hmm. fucked up and ambivalent, right? Even if they had kept it the way that it was, but had David been smiling with blood covering his face from the explosion out of Orem, that to me would have worked just as well too, because it's more than one thing at once, right? It's a moment of like beauty and scariness and, and you know, it, it, there's something primitive about that. So so this, this movie suffers, I think, because maybe it's because of the push and pull, maybe it's because of the studio demanding certain things, maybe it's because Ridley was just making 300 movies that week and he was just trying to get done with it as quickly as he could, but there are not enough ambivalences in this movie. And I think that that would have made it better. And I do think that's one thing that Prometheus does better than Covenant, is Prometheus has moments in it that do feel kind of ambivalent to me. Covenant, it does, but it doesn't always. I also want to circle back to a sequence we haven't really talked about yet, but that came up a little, Matt was kind of alluding to it earlier. The grass attack sequence is what immediately prefigures the necropolis sequence that we were talking about in the film, right? The grass attack sequence to me is fucking a great example of how you do alien different, but still capture the way it feels. So, right, it's not claustrophobic, but it is hidden, right? It's out in the open, but you can't tell where the creature is. We've only seen, you know, this Neomorph for a glimpse of an eye, and, and it was this baby, but like clearly something's going on because as it's running in the grass, it's moving the grass more, and it's very frightening, right? Yeah. It's not slow and stalkery like the Xenomorph we see in the first film is. It's something very different and very primal, but also unsettling in that way. Um, and the way that it attacks is on, we're not used to it yet. So we we're, we're shocked when it uses its tail to whip off his face, you know, like we're shocked when it swallows Walter's arm and bites it off. Those moments to me feel very, very alien and yet very, very different. So we're talking about how, you know, this Hulu series, for example, could take something that feels like alien and change it and do it in a way that feels fresh to people who have seen it all before. That grass attack sequence to me is a great example of how you can do that. Just to piggyback on the Hulu series idea for a moment, that's going to be our first test. I guess it's coming next year. According to Noah Hawley, it's set on Earth in the near future. So already that contradicts the David made the aliens timeline, right? Unless near future means actually more than 100 years from now, slightly before 2022 or whatever, 2122. So this is going to be a great time to see. We're not, we're not far off from getting our answer of are they really going to stick to Ridley's hard line? This is the story or, or is there some wiggle room? And, and yeah, like we were talking to, to Philip from Marvel comics, he's finding some wiggle room. And a lot of the, uh, the current authors who are writing are finding a little bit of wiggle room. A lot of people keep referencing the bas relief in Prometheus when they're in the, the, um, the chamber with all with the, with the gigantic head. Thank God for that, by the way, thank God that's there. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. It, it, yeah. it shows it's too big a piece and the, the camera lingers on it too long yeah. to say they snuck it past Ridley. No, no, yeah. this was supposed to be here. You're supposed to see what it is yeah. and we'll see where it goes. And yet, and yet the bar relief was the art department's idea. It absolutely and, was. And yeah. this is, this is one of the, and you see that in Charles's documentary, they're talking about it. Like they, they were like, let's like incorporate some of the design into the wall of the, of the chamber. So again, what we're seeing is a push and a pull away from and towards Ridley's vision. And that has defined these prequels to me. It's, it's like, how do we do what he's making us do, but in a way that will suffuse enough open-endedness that we can still make a really cohesive and interesting, sophisticated story out of it. 
I have like a, I don't have an an, my own answer to this question. It's just like burning in my mind now, because if we follow that line of thinking of like, David creates the alien, why Orem? Why is Orem like the first, the first life giver? Is that some sort of like, fuck you? Or is it sort of like, where's the poetry there? Maybe that's why he has the religious arc for some reason, right? He's a religious guy and like, God is dead now. And it's the alien. I don't know. Perfect. <laughs> that, that's the best I got. Sorry, we got it. I think I think that Covenant will actually be. Let's say there is another movie. Let's say there's a third sequel. I think Covenant is actually the harder film to follow than Prometheus. With Prometheus, you've got two characters on an alien spaceship having potentially a wacky adventure. There, there were ways they could have done it differently. That's a wacky fine. adventure. It's kind of laugh at that too. But but Covenant. Um, as as I mean that that ending is the darkest thing we've had since Ripley dropped into the molten lead. You know that's a it's a really tough place to you've led your audience to a very hard place and then you're like and that's it. You know, um, but as far as envisioning a a new path in for another audience, we can't just cut back to the same ship and see that now you know two thousand colonists have all been transformed into aliens and you know you're you're going to actually have to have another another ship another mission you know something else gets sent out to follow it and and talk about the retread jamie i mean are are we really going to do another set of brand new people going out there and running into david it's just and something that's weird about the prequels is that ridley seems sort of fixated on everything had to be the first prometheus is the first ship to go out this far it's the biggest it's the cleanest whatever the covenant is the first gigantic you know or large-scale colonization mission it's never gone anywhere before everything is clean also here's the very first alien it's it comes out of a wiener you know this guy's just a terrible character and <laughs> now you have this alien it's not really a wiener, sorry. anyway uh but could, yeah couldn't we have things be a little more lived in wouldn't it be because the coincidence that the Covenant, the very first large-scale mission, just happens to find the robot from the very first large-scale Wayland mission. I don't like it. I wish that the Covenant had been, it doesn't have to be routine, but couldn't this be like the 10th mission? And that's what, that's, this crew has ferried uh, colonists back and forth a little bit or something. And that's why there's really surprised to find this planet that's closer by. Because I don't, I don't buy for a minute that this group of people have any camaraderie outside of their immediate, either the person they're married to or possibly one other person. Why would they know each other this well? They've been in cryo for X number of years. It's just, you're, you're asked to believe that they have a, 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 a history, but the film doesn't give you any reason for that to exist. Well, they probably trained together like NASA astronauts do, right? For to get They them have not trained. You show me one person in this movie that knows what they're doing. <laughs> you, Tennessee tells us again and again what an amazing pilot he is. He has to push some buttons. He's on the bridge of a gigantic ship that is hurtling through space for seven years while a robot goes around and does everything for him. I, I just He's got a hat though. He does <laughs> that, a that hat. straw hat. Oh man, that that was a yeah, that, that got talked about when I watched it, not alone. She was like, Why why are you why she why is he wearing the hat? We had just watched The Abyss kind of recently, and she was like, Why does everyone on a ship have to have a straw hat? And I was like, I I don't know. <laughs> It's just a thing. I don't a little know, piece of home. Yeah. Well, let the me Christians, say just briefly, just really quick, just from a story. So I, I go back, Christian, to that this was not an accident. That this they were 
they were sabotaged to land on this planet by either David or the company or both working at cahoots of like, I, I think that's, that's why, um, those events happen in the film. So like, although I agree that it would be nice if there had been like other missions before this, if things had been lived in a little, I, I from an aesthetic standpoint, agree with that. And also just from a verisimilitude standpoint, which I don't say anymore because people had a drinking game about me saying verisimilitude. I'm dropping it tonight <laughs> because it's a good word for this moment from a believability granular. standpoint. Yeah. Granular. Um, I, I feel like masterpiece. I feel like, uh, to, to me, I'm okay with it because I justify it like that, but who knows, Jamie, go ahead. Well, to Christian's point about how it would be easier to make a sequel to Prometheus than Covenant, I think actually Covenant, there's a great sequel there. I really honestly do. But what the challenge is having a sequel made coherently, having a sequel made where you're not going off into something else with a new set of characters. They could crash that ship. David could be David could be in pieces. Um, Daniels and, and Tennessee could wake up and they could be like, well, here we are. And so they start their life or whatever. And in a way that is gripping and different, but you would need someone to write that script with a vision, with a story to tell someone who can curate characters, make Daniels into something that's not Ripley, um, make Tennessee more likable, more believable. And it's there, but I just think with the, the way things are working with Ridley Scott, it's not going to happen. Ridley Scott, he's he's an ideas man now. He's like, I got this idea for this. I got this idea for that. Let's kind of put them together and see if they work. And I think that's what's frustrating about Covenant. I would much rather not like Covenant at all than like it the way that I do, honestly. It's hard to like a movie like, yeah, I love this, but that sucks. I hate that. I hate feeling like that. I hate feeling that complicated about something. I, I, I w That's not how I enjoy media. I don't. Like, I don't. I don't, I'm not going to sit and watch a show that I don't like, and I'm not going to. And so it's hard for me to sit down and watch a movie where like, yeah, I like that bat. Like I like that bit 20 minutes. Of this, I don't like, I'm just, so I don't watch covenant. It's not that I don't find worthy things in there, but it's frustrating. And that's not what it's not how I enjoy. You know, I mean, I, wa I'll, I'll watch the first three alien films ad infinitum. I mean, I would go, right now and go watch them that's how watchable they are that's how amazing they are and i think that's that's also the struggle with with covenant is and and prometheus and i was thinking about prometheus and and in relation to alien three and then we go into covenant where when alien three released everybody was pissed off because they killed off newton hicks right that was the big thing took a lot a lot of people a long time to get over that and say, okay, I mean, people are still struggling with that now. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I'll do it. We'll watch it. That's a very real thing. They did the same thing with Shaw. By the end of Prometheus, people were like, okay, where are they going to go? Let's kill her. Like, let's kill her and let's start new. Like, when that's your starting point, when you, and yes, Prometheus made more money than Covenant, but we, by the end of it, you're like, okay, we're there. We sat through this movie. It was kind of bullshit, but we're there. And we like Shaw, but now we kill her and we have these, a bunch of other people now. I, I think it's a hard thing to ask the audience. And that's not historically what Alien has been. It's always been a chronicling of characters and notably mostly Ripley. But for me, as I, we continue to approach this film, I, I feel like, well, what is it about this that's so frustrating? 
and that it is frustrating and that it's not just one thing it's several things and we can and i think we all have those movies where like yeah i love like for instance lady hawk i fucking love lady hawk and it's cheesy as hell you know and it's yeah. stupid in some moments yeah, but it's connected cheesy movie james it you totally know, is oh that's a cheesy movie oh totally totally uh but i love the score <laughs> even though it's terribly wonderful um <laughs> do, but do, sorry keep going oh go ahead Okay. Do you know how much shit I take in sword and sorcery fandom because I love Conan the Destroyer? Like that movie is terrible, but it's awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like like Conan the Barbarian is easy to defend. There's a lot going on there, but the Destroyer is the one where I take heat for it. But, but I think I think those movies know what they are. Yes. Self-aware. Yes. Whereas Covenant, there's like you're the frustrating part is there are so many good ideas. There's so much potential and it doesn't know what it is. It's yeah. like four movies in one and it's trying to appease every type of alien viewer all at once. And by doing that, it's appeasing very few of them. I feel. Yeah. I, I, I here's the thing, Jamie, as I've been listening to the show, I'm like, I'm so often sympathizing with you, like how frustrated you are, because it's so clear how much you love this series. And there's parts where like, I'm a bit afraid because it's like, I can't go down that hole, man. Like, well, as a film fan, I like, uh, I like a variety of elements to a film. Okay. It, it, it can have a lot of warts as long as it hits certain things for me. So a film that has a great score, it has great cinematography. It's got at least one character I dig. It's got decent direction. The really, the only thing hurting Covenant, and this is a big thing, is the script. I think everything else pretty much works. All the other pieces are there. Now, a script is your blueprint for the film, so it's friggin' important. But I can forgive a lot if if I'm entertained enough by these other features without David, I would hate the movie. It wouldn't work at all for me, but he anchors it all that I can just, mm -hmm. I can throw enough aside that I can sit down and enjoy it and not be knocking my fist against the wall, but resurrection. I can't because I pretty much detest all the characters, even Ripley. I hate mm -hmm. what they did with her mm -hmm. and I can watch it for some of the cool visual effects, but that one, I, I, I can't get a lot of good kernels out of it. I think that's what we do in general when we yeah. all, when we watch things, we, we can think, okay, whatever, whatever. But if they, if they land it, if that they land the ending and if we're still yeah. with those characters, we can look, I mean, we've had this discussion before Patrick and I many times where there are things in aliens that we like, okay, this is a little bit of a retread, but it doesn't even matter because it's amazing. And yeah, what exactly. they do with Ripley and her story doesn't matter that there's a final countdown. It doesn't matter that, she goes with an incinerator looking for Newt the same way she went looking for Jonesy. I mean, beat yeah. for beat things from alien. It doesn't matter because the story, the big picture of the story is just amazing. And I think we all do that for things that we love or we end up falling in love with. I mean, even people we fall in love with, we overlook their flaws because we love them. Right. Um, or we learn to love them. And I, I just think for many of us covenant fails that there's just too many there's too many dominoes falling even if the first five are great you know and that's yeah. just that's the hardest thing and i 
again, you know, Patrick and I were talking about Blade Runner and there's a new series called Black Lotus. And I hate not liking something that's in a universe that I adore. Yeah. I hate it. I it's don't, hard. It's really hard. And yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's, I, gave, I, I mean, I, I gave up that. I gave that up a long time ago. Yeah. You gotta yeah. just have no expectations for anything. <laughs> I, I can't, you. I can't do that either, though. Like, I can say I will, but I won't. Like, if there's yeah. another alien movie coming and it's Ridley Scott. Oh, me too. And like, oh, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm going to follow every piece of news. But it also starts to seep in, right? Like I, I, when Prometheus came out, I said, okay, this isn't for me. That's fine. I have my original trilogy. I'll be good. The Whaling Yutani report comes out and written in it is Dallas accidentally mistook this alien engineer's helmet for a skull. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you know, you're, 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 I'm allergic to peanut butter and you're sticking my chocolate bar in it. You know, that kind of a thing. <laughs> That's a terrible metaphor, but like, we can't actually perfectly separate these things the same way that if you're a star wars fan you have to come to terms with the prequels because they get referenced they get brought back in do we J- <laughs> I, I think it's an actual question honestly it's like the, i i, I really appreciate okay, a lot more in light of the sequel trilogy i gotta say this though i gotta say this every time something like the mandalorian makes a reference to the prequel trilogy i don't have to go back and watch it my brain pings that moment like oh mm-hmm. yeah okay and it's like, it's lore. It's just stuff that's in there. I don't, I don't have to go back and look at it. Right. That's, that's wow. where the hope comes. Right. Because if, if the Mandalorian fixed a lot of crap, I mean, it didn't actually go back and fix it, but it restored faith. And it, um, it takes those little pieces from prequel material and it peppers them in nicely. And even though I don't watch uh, the animated series and I really will never watch those prequels again, I can appreciate the little nuggets they put in there. So where I think it was Maj who said, I appreciate your optimism. It's like, (laughs) that is my piece of optimism here. I hope we can do that and and recover those bits that really work. Anyway, sorry. And I want to say, I just want to, now I'm holding up as dispenser. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, I just want to say for my prequel fans out there and my Star Wars fans, I didn't mean the question. It's a real question. do, Do we ignore the Star Wars prequels? I mean, in like growing up my whole life i was always like looking for the truest version of things and when i was a kid for some reason in most of the times that meant the movie version of it that's the definitive thing or whatever and i don't know i always struggled with that like when i started collecting comic books as a kid if i picked up a comic book that i really didn't like or i felt just wasn't my idea of what this this character is or whatever i was like oh oh no like this can't exist like people can't read this and think this is the real thing it was just I don't know, just things being canon, I would get so stuck on. And then I had some sort of breaking point where I was like, this is all fake. This is literally all fake. Everything's made up. I can ignore what I want. I can consume what I want and ignore what I want. And I don't know if that's, I I don't know. I know what you mean though, when moving forward, if things are gonna continue to be incorporated and be accepted into it, that is, yeah. I think that's healthy. It's it's oh, a healthy thanks. viewpoint, so.
And, and I think this is a good way to kind of bring this conversation home because I think it's at the heart of this entire conversation, what we're talking about. And I think it's it's symptomatic. I'm not going to go super long-winded here, but it's symptomatic of a larger cultural moment that we're having that we've been having, I think, since 1999, which is that we are in an age where nothing is allowed to die gracefully. We're in an age where the nostalgia of the things we grew up with and fell in love with as children is fueling the box office and it's fueling this consistent marketability of things. And it's really painful for a lot of people when it doesn't work well. Speaking, so Star Wars is something that I'm a huge fan of, as are many of you. I know that personally is to be the case. For for me, the reason why this, I don't think the sequels are very good. I don't, I don't actually like them very much. And, and I've, I like them less now than I did when I saw them. There's some, some emotional fulfillment for me with them, but I kind of just discounted them because I don't think that they're that great. The prequels, I also, I think the prequels are completely garbage as actual, I think they're horrible movies. I, I truly think yeah. the older I get, the worse they get, which is almost yeah. impossible. But I appreciate the amount of effort that went into them. I appreciate the filmmaking advances that happened as a result of that digital production. I appreciate the world building, although I don't think we needed it. Whatever. But I... Go ahead, Matt. No, sorry. I was just going to say there's... What I've learned about those prequels is that there's a generation of kids who cut their teeth on Star Wars through those. So... Yeah. My brother-in-law in thinks it's... that they're his favorite Star Wars movies. My yeah. nephew who and thinks he loves them. They're, they're, all, they're all wrong, but right. <laughs> I'm, hey, glad they, not, I'm glad they had it. I'm going to date and, myself here. I was in nine years old, episode one. I had the tape. I watched it every day. I would go wow. home and watch episode one. And to be fair, um, George Lucas was making it for you, though. That's the thing people forget about, is that George yeah. Lucas was making a movie about a fucking Senate embargo <laughs> dispute for children with Jar Jar Binks in it. So, like, the, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, he was marketing it to the right audience if you liked it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I had a latex Jar Jar mask that I wore one Halloween as a kid. And I, it's absolutely hilarious oh thinking back God. on it. I, lo I loved him. He was hilarious. Yeah. And um, and then uh, um, I do remember there were like some older kids and I this is so crazy. This is just this faint memory, but it absolutely happened where these two kids like um, older kids were just like, oh, Jar Jar. And I could just like hear it in the wind. And I was like, um, yeah, Jar Jar, dude. Am I not Wait, supposed he, to love him? He, like, he's not cool. Yeah, <laughs> Misa, Misa, not cool. <laughs> you used to see the same a movie. <laughs> but just going back for a second. So, so my, my point being that I, I had that moment in 1999, which we just talked about on our first episode of the Doom podcast, where I went to that the first screening of Episode One, opening weekend, dressed Dar dressed as Darth Maul with fucking face paint, and I was heartbroken by it. And that was a moment in my life as a little kid where I decided. My relationship with movies is what I make it. I, when Resurrection came out, enjoyed it because I was still a kid at that point. But I was also like, this isn't the original three films for me. Like those, those three films live in this special part of my brain that nothing else can really touch. And I think that's given me a healthier perspective than maybe some other people have had as subsequent things have come out. With Star Wars especially, there, there will never be a movie that will touch me the way the original trilogy touched me. And that's something that I just decided for, like, I'm not expecting that. I don't actually even want that. Like, they, you can fuck off with, and, you know, that's part of my heart. Like, nothing else needs to be there, right? So for me, like, the sequels being a letdown in many ways well, wasn't a very big deal because they just never, it was just, it was always fluff that other people can get into. And indeed, my children adore them obviously, because they're incredible looking. My kids aren't jaded with Star Wars yet because this is this is new to them still. They've been to every opening weekend of these three movies, including the expanded, the other two films. 
Um, and, and I think that, you know, and obviously they love the Mandalorian. We even watched the bad batch. We watch all the animated series. Like this is, it's, it's in our household constantly. And it's great because my kids are watching it with new eyes and just adoring it. And that's wonderful. And I love that for them with Prometheus, right? That was the first time as an alien fan where I had that reaction of like, wait a minute, get the fuck out of here. You're expecting me to buy this as alien. Like you expect me to think that this movie where these characters are making these just impossibly stupid decisions and where the filmmaking is so sophomoric some, for some reason, you expect me to accept that as an alien movie. And then I realized that I actually don't have to, and I didn't. And so to me, Prometheus has never actually felt like an alien film because it doesn't have to. Covenant to me, the reason I don't want to harp on this again, but the reason why I just love it and I will always defend it is because it broke through that wall. And there's like a solid chunk of that movie that sits with those original three films for me, which feels incomprehensible. Like sitting here tonight in this in this house, it feels crazy to me to think that there is a movie that was made just a few years ago that actually captured the feeling of the original film for me in the midst of all this other garbage, right? And in the midst of all this other shit that I wish had been done differently. So for me, that was a moment where like, I questioned my own ability to separate myself from these subsequent movies, even though I know I'm being marketed to and manipulated by all of these people who are just playing on my nostalgia and playing on the things that I, you know, desire. So this is an incredibly long way, long winded way of saying that I think that our relationships, especially with a movie like Covenant are really complicated, because they say a lot of things about us as fans and as viewers and consumers of this media. And they say a lot of things about, I think, how self-aware we are of what our actual personal relationships are with this material. And for me, I decided early on in Covenant, because the first hour is so good, that like, that's my relationship with this movie and I'm gonna take it, you know? The last thing I wanna say before I shut up, do you know how much longer Aliens is than Covenant? It's 15 minutes longer, one five, 15 minutes. And yet in the span of aliens, you have like an entire fucking universe of character trajectories going on. You ha they go to so many sets. I mean, talk about Empire Strikes Back going to a lot of places. Aliens goes all over the place, right? You have many different scenes, many different set pieces. Uh, you know, you have a fourth act that doesn't stop very quickly. You have big shit going on and it never feels rushed. It feels slow. That's the crazy thing. Andy, what you were talking about going into Hadley's Hope earlier, right? Like that in my head is a fucking 40 minute long sequence, yes. even though when you watch it, it's seven minutes long, right? Because it's not hurried. And that is something that is lost in these new movies that I wrestle with. And I want to go back briefly to what a few of you said earlier about the Necropolis sequence, right? Like there is no reason that that should not have been filmed and treated differently. There is no reason that these filmmakers, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, these filmmakers are assuming that we're as bored of this as they are. And that's a problem. Yeah. These filmmakers yeah. are saying, the audience has seen this mm -hmm. before, they don't need to see it again. The audience is saying, they're saying, you know, they know how the life cycle of the alien works. We can just skip some stuff. They can just do it quickly. Cause like they get it, whatever they get, like, let's get to the new stuff. When in reality, the audience doesn't, hasn't forgotten what it was like to be afraid, hasn't forgotten the desire to see these things with fresh eyes again, right? My kids don't know what it's like to be used to the chestburster sequence yet, even though they've seen it a number of times now. Like my my kids deserve that same sense of reverence and awe with their generation of alien movies. We deserve it too as people who grew up with this. So my, my plea to people who touch this property, including Noah Hawley and his team, is treat it like it's important and treat it like we're not bored yet because we are not. Because when it works, when Covenant works, it is fucking astonishing. The, the sequence that we always talk about with the backburster oh, is astonishing so alien filmmaking. Yeah. There are huge stretches of this movie that do it, and they are the stretches that are not that that are aware of how scary they are, and they love that. So long-winded way of saying, 
I think that the future is still ripe with opportunity for this, but you have to treat it well and treat us like we're not a bunch of dumbasses. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> I think that we're going to have to do a whole episode on the David Walter stuff because that the camera, the, the, the focus of the film in the necropolis can't get away from our human characters fast enough. Okay. Yeah. Here they are. They're they're sitting down, right? They're standing up. Whatever. Show us those androids. That's what that's what Ridley Scott was there for. That's what he wanted the writers to focus on. And as viewers, we have to make that switch. We have to say, okay, you know, it, in a perfect world, this would be like that moment in Alien when you suddenly realize Dallas isn't the lead. Kane isn't the lead. He's dead. It's Ripley. I never would have expected it to be Ripley. That's what David ought to be. And maybe is if we can just get to that place of like, okay, okay, we're, we're done watching the humans run around and get killed. Now let's focus on some really riveting acting by Michael Fassbender. Yeah, see, that's kind of how that one works for me. Um, I mean, I like Prometheus too, the, but the issue I have mainly is that it doesn't have a single character that I really like. It's got a lot of sequences that I think are great. It's got a lot of parts, uh, that don't really come together as a whole. But as soon as I'm um, over the human characters and covenant, and we get to the part that starts to drag, then I got David and his, he and Walter are, they are enough to sustain me. And it's why that film is always going to be superior um, to Prometheus. As far as the ones that I don't like as much. <laughs> hmm. Oh, and full disclosure. When I was a young man, I saw alien resurrection in the theater and I liked it too what i grew up <laughs> just 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 being honest here you're okay. not alone on the podcast yeah, yeah i mean yeah. We, i think yeah. we all saw it i think yeah. we all tried to enjoy it for what it yeah. was well, i mean Jamie, i did I was, I was young did enough see it seven or eight or something like that seven seven yeah. oh man i love that you guys remember the amount of times you saw it and it's a weird number like seven who remembers that number Good well job. i was working at the theater jamie um, was late middle-aged by this point so, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 63 um <laughs> But yeah, so it's, I could just go as many times as I wanted to. And I did. Yeah, that's awesome. Just going back to the David thing. That's what happened with me on the second viewing. The first viewing, I wanted to like the humans. I I, I was in it for them and they I, I just wasn't by the end. And then the second viewing, it was all about David. And that's why I appreciated it more the second time because my focus switched. And... I mean, Fassbender was always riveting to me. He was my favorite part about Prometheus as well. But just watching it intently with just my focus on David and Walter, like it, it definitely leveled it up for me. I, it, is, I, it is good stuff. Yeah, like, it, is. it really is. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and for me, it's kind of enough. I should be more harsh on things. <laughs> I will say there was a scene at the end. So that scene, I, I think the... The beginning and the end scenes are fabulous. Um, but the scene at the end when she's in the cryotube, I remembered it completely wrong the second time I watched it. And I thought that she had rem that she had realized it was David. Because um, of the thing? From the nail. Me yes. too. I, I had that same thought. And then when I rewatched yes. it the other night, I was like, oh. Didn't even notice that. And, th yeah. and maybe that's what drew my attention to David's weird reaction, right? Where he was kind of yes. like, yeah, I could have sworn. She I could have that. sworn it too. So I don't know like, what it, yeah, it made. Weird. Yeah. It's a flaw though, because he doesn't have the healing capacity that Walter no. has. So it should be there. So what's going it on? Be, it should be there. 
Maybe it's not a flaw, but there's they made a choice. I don't know if you can quite, to be fair, I don't know if you can quite see from that angle, but it is, it's really curious that they didn't use that as the thing. Like he looks up a little higher and then she sees it. I feel like the camera focuses on his neck and there's oh, no yeah. mark. Uh, okay. I, I have a question I got to ask because I, I feel like a dumb person when I, when I rewatch this, the wheat. Yeah. Where this is wheat. So is the wheat like, okay, is this, did David somehow have wheat seeds? Did he plant them? Did wheat originate on this planet and then was brought to earth by engineers? What is with the wheat and why am I, why don't I know the answer to this? Yeah, in the last episode, we were talking about the possibility that instead of these being engineers, they're another seed race. Right, the seed race. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And if that's true, then literally the seed, you know, the wheat could also be something that the engineers bring to these, you know, that it's food that you can eat. Right. And that's that was my takeaway is that uh, perhaps uh, the wheat that we eat is from the engineers. I guess that's what I'm supposed to take. I don't know. The dialogue around it is... Again, it's that I wish there was a second pass or a third pass because yeah. they're incredulous. What are the chances that an earth yeah. product would be out here? Like, it's right. impossible. This is not clear. <laughs> this yeah. can't be earth food. Right. And so he, he, know, he, he knows wheat. He does know wheat. He knows, he knows his wheat. <laughs> you, know, you can't argue with that. So, yeah. He can't well, secure the a perimeter. That they, the way that they ask it and, you know, who planted it and the way it's set up, clearly someone's here. It, they yeah. don't. They make it seem like this is alien to this planet, yeah. where maybe it isn't. Yeah, I thought um, it was the perfect planet for humans. It's already got wheat. <laughs> I do think um, the sequence with Walter and David does need exploring, and I don't think we have the time for that tonight. Um, Patrick and I have been discussing going into AI as it relates to the alien series and what these characters are. Um, even with call and David and Walter and Ash and Bishop, um, the AI is very, very fascinating. And that whole sequence with Walter and David is telling it's telling to us as people. Um, and it's telling to, to them as androids. And I, I'm excited to break that down because to your point, Patrick earlier, I think that whole sequence is brilliant. I do think that the, some of the, dialogue is problematic it just kind of eviscerates it the fingering thing it's like come on like you want you want us to take it seriously then don't make it don't make a dick joke and there was kind of a dick joke a little bit there's like four of them i was kind of like why why are they hitting this so hard like there's now i just made another but uh, like, <laughs> but i do think that we should get into it um I, again i we've been going for about an hour and 45 minutes so i think we need to wrap but there will be definitely m- more to discuss i think that I do think that there are a lot of parallels between Covenant and Alien 3 in terms of a big ask that a lot of people have to get over. Like, can you get over this? Can you get over the death of Newton Hicks? Can you get over the dismemberment of Bishop? Can you do this? And I think a lot of people could because there was our girl. There was Ripley. There she was. And do we root for her story? And was it an authentic end to her character? Did it honor who she was? And it really does. It's not this this like amazing, wonderful, happy ending. But I, I think that's not Rid- Ripley's story and we can get over that. And I think the difference is there's no character. I don't think David is that character. There's no character in covenant to really say, okay, 
this is all kind of ridiculous, but I'm with Daniels or I'm with Tennessee or I'm with David. For me, actually, that character would have been Walter. Uh, if Walter would have survived, if he would have made it back to the ship somehow, I would probably think very different about Covenant, but he didn't. And when they, when Walter ate it, I was like, man, I'm done. Like, I loved Walter. He just was quiet and loving. And I don't know, there's just something about him that I really grabbed onto, but they didn't go anywhere with him. So anyways, I think that those those two films share quite a bit. To that end, we're going to end it here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. There is more to talk about. We will talk about it more. I'm going to send it off to Patrick to close us out. Let's do it. So uh, I'm not going to go back through all of our patrons from this year, but I am going to go back a few months. To, so uh, there's some there's some new names here that we're really welcome, uh, that we're really excited to have. If you want to join these names and you're not one of them, go ahead over to perfectorganism.com slash support and join. We have an exclusive series going right now, as I mentioned earlier, on Dune in the lead up to the North American premiere and then after, as well as just an extended movie discussion show called Frame Rate. Also, the shit show exclusive content we do for Alien Days on there. So if you want to join, please do. Uh, just going back a few months here, we have Priscilla, Paul Middleton, Matt Bro, Christopher Egan, Fred in the Clouds. I don't know if it's a birth name or not. Uh, Douglas McNaught, A.T. Johnson, Doug Freechen, Joseph Rosner, Richard Blackwell, Dan Arnett, Duncan Scrygmore Lewis, Forrest McKnight, Josh Cambrian, Sarah Browns, Oliver, uh, Simon Stafford, and Brooke Johnson. Thank you, everybody. And thank you thank to you. this amazing roundtable. Thank you, Matt, for coming on. You were awesome. It was a pleasure yes. talking to you. Thank you, uh, you know, pleasure. to Xander for joining the team officially and putting some great content out. And thank you to our contributing hosts and our friends who are here week in and week out recording this great show together. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. Awesome. Thank you. A lot of thank fun. You, Many thanks. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.